Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just thank you. Lord, you are sovereign. You are in control. And in times of uncertainty, Lord, we do have to just raise our hands, be on our knees, and say, Lord, we surrender this to you. It may be something going on in our personal life. It may be going on in a larger scale around the world, in the global events that are taking place. Lord, may we cry out to you and say, Lord, we ask for your healing in your hands, in our lives and in our land, for your people, for this world, our nation. We don't know all the pieces and moving around, what it's going to lead to, but Lord, we just ask, we cry out to you for your mercy and your hand over this. We give you this time, Lord. May your Holy Spirit speak to us. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the phrase, don't push my buttons. How many of you are familiar with that phrase? Don't push my buttons. What do we mean by that when we say, don't push my buttons? That, that means, right, there are some things that we can be patient with. We can remain calm with. But if you do a particular thing or say something or something, something we hear or happen to us, it pushes a button and all that peace and calm turns into the Incredible Hulk, right? In like, in a matter of 0.3 seconds, your demeanor can change and you go in frenzy mode, right? Don't push my buttons. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the Atari, the Atari video game system. All right, back in the day, the Atari system was the video console, right? And back then, the Atari console, the, the controller had one button, just one button to press. And even back then, parents were confused about that, right? One button to press. Even TV remote controls, how many of you remember these controls, right? TV remote controls, I remember that. I am old enough to remember that. Maybe four buttons, to press for the remote control, right? That was what it looked like back in the day. How many of you would say, I only have one button? There's just one button that if you press, I go crazy. None of you. How many of you have only like four buttons? Maybe. Regardless, maybe, maybe some of you look like this, right? These days, video game controllers have a lot more buttons to press, and certainly TV remote controls have a whole lot of buttons to press. How many of you kind of resemble this more than the previous picture, right? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's probably so. Regardless of how many buttons you have that can be pressed, can we all agree that growing up, no one knows how to best press those buttons than our siblings. You relate to that? Siblings are like the master button pressers, right? They know, they have this uncanny way of knowing what buttons to press and when to press it. And sometimes they even do it on purpose, right? Most of us, and what, you know, I don't know how many of you have 
uh, siblings, but um, siblings seem to kind of have a way to be able to bring out the ugly side of you sometimes, right? That can happen. So they are master button pressers. How many would say siblings are master button pressers? How many of you, some would argue parents. Now parents are the master button pressers. How many would say parents are the master button pressers? Wow, this section is being really good. (laughs) They're like, my parents are watching. I can't say the parents. That's okay. They can't see your eyes. I can see your eyes. Kids, how many of your kids, your kids are master button pressers? A lot more parents are willing to say that. Okay. Uh, most of us, if not all of us, have those triggers. Those triggers that can send us over the edge, right? This represents me and my three phases that I go through each and every day in, in uh, traffic on the 405, right? Those three phases, that's me. First, I experience frustration. Then the second one represents my agony. And then that third one is my resignation, right? That's my three phases that I go through each day in, com- in commuting on that 405 freeway, right? There's a lot of people who press those buttons, When those buttons are pressed, we can often lose our patience, right? We lose our self-control. We lose our temper, our sense of restraint. Even sometimes if those buttons get pressed, we could even lose a sense of hope when those buttons are pressed. We all have weaknesses, right? We all have vulnerabilities that we're prone to give into. Today we're going to continue to look at the story of Cain and Abel. And as I mentioned last week, chapter 4 really focuses particularly on Cain in this story. And it's interesting that whenever siblings are together, even in Scripture, conflict seems not too far away. Right? I don't know how many of you can relate to that. If you have siblings, it seems like when you get siblings together, conflict just seems to kind of happen not too far away. If you're with your sibling, how many of you can last five minutes with your sibling before a conflict happens? How many of that is only like a minute? Right? I remember those days. My kids aren't here. I don't know if they're going to watch this message. But there was a time when my kids were together, it's almost like clockwork. Okay, how long is it going to take for them to get to argue? do something to each other, annoy each other, whatever it is. And it's usually like a minute, right? I don't know. But something about siblings. And when you look at the story of Cain and Abel, is it a matter of a sibling rivalry? Maybe. Maybe not. Let's take a look again at the passage, starting at verse 3 this time in Genesis chapter 4. Let's look at the story. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. 
So again, we see Adam and Eve's sons brought offerings to the Lord. Cain was the older son, and he was, you could say, a farmer. And so he brought the fruit of the ground as an offering to the Lord. Abel was the younger brother, and he was a shepherd. And he brought the best of his flock as an offering to the Lord. And we see that the Lord regarded Abel's offering, but did not regard Cain's offering. And we don't know exactly how this played out, right? What this looked like for God to regard one's offering above the other. We're not sure what that looked like, but we know that took place. And so the focus then shifts to how Cain would respond. How would Cain respond to God? And we see that Cain becomes very angry and his countenance fell. When I read this, I picture little kids. You know when little kids get angry? You can see it in their face. They get that wrinkled brow. Maybe their cheeks get puffed up, their lips pursed together. You can tell that they're angry. Kids don't necessarily hide their anger very well. And if you look at their face, you know where they learned that from, that face? Yeah, mom and dad, right? It tends, they tend to mirror mom and dad in that face. Because frankly, adults don't necessarily hide their anger well either sometimes, right? But here we see Cain's response was that he was very angry and his countenance fell. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And the Lord's mercy and kindness, just as he did with his, their parents, Adam and Eve, the Lord confronts Cain. And God asked Cain, after he presented this offering, why he was angry. Why did your countenance fall? Verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain evidently did not present a worthy offering to God, right? We talked about that last week. We don't know necessarily if it was the offering itself, or if it was something about Cain, or a combination of both. It may have been the offering, but I think it had more to do with Cain than just the offering. It wasn't a matter of meat versus veggies, as much as I may like to make that the case, right? I think it was something about Cain himself. So last week, we looked at our offerings to the Lord, right? We looked at Cain's offering, where he was at, and we looked at our offerings to the Lord. And this week, we want to look at what is waiting at our door. What is waiting at our door? God gives Cain an opportunity to make right. Right? When he confronts Cain, he gives him opportunity to do what is right. You don't need to remain angry. Right? That's why God asks, why are you angry? You don't need to be angry. You don't need to remain with your countenance downcast. So he warns Cain. 
He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. We should all take notice of God's warning to Cain here. If Cain does what is right, if he just makes things right, he does the right thing, he makes good in what he did, his countenance will be lifted. And that's often the case, right? When we find ourselves, we did something that we know we shouldn't have done, and we look in the mirror, we see it on our faces, we wear it on our faces. Sometimes the most simplest thing to do is just to do what's right. Make right. Make good. But oftentimes what we do is we just follow that up with doing something worse. And he says, God says, on the contrary, contrary, if he does not, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you. His des- its desire is for Cain. This is very powerful, vivid imagery here, right? right? God uses this kind of like personification to understand sin. Sin is waiting with anticipation and desire. And God tells Cain, but you must master it. Don't let it overtake you. Don't let it control you. But what ends up happening? It turns out sin masters Cain. Verse 8, And Cain told his brother, Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why did Cain become so angry? Sibling rivalry? Was he jealous? Envious? Maybe he felt shame. Was this the first time this happened? Was this the first time that Cain brought something to God, offered to God that God did not regard? We don't know what did mom and dad, was he a mama's boy? Was he a dad? We don't know those things, right? We don't know those details. We can only guess. But what we see, there was no hiding for Cain. It's interesting, the inclusion of God asking Cain, why was he angry, leads me to believe that his anger was unnecessary. He was unnecessarily angry when God says, Cain, why are you angry? Maybe your parents have done that, right? Asked you that question. You come up and you just kind of like, you're mad. And you, you respond a certain way to them. And they kind of like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? Right? Sometimes we can, parents ask that way, like, wait, you don't need to be upset right now. Let's compare the situation with their parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve immediately tried to cover and hide when they disobeyed God, right? Then God calls out to to the man, where are you? Remember that? And when Adam revealed they tried to hide, because of what they, you know, because they saw that their, their, their shame, their nakedness. God asked them, did you eat of the fruit I commanded you not to eat? 
And both try to shift blame to somebody else, but giving them credit, they both admitted to what they did, right? They both said, we ate of the fruit. Cain, he murders his brother, and God confronts Cain. He calls out to Cain, but this time, he doesn't say, where are you? God says to Cain, where is your brother? Where is your brother? And what does Cain do? His response, he tries to cover up his sin by lying to God. I don't know. I don't know where my brother is. By the way, lying to God, not a good strategy, right? Not a good strategy. In fact, using deceit to cover up your previous sin or whatever, not a good strategy, right? When parents confront us, our obvious response is, I don't know. I didn't do it. Why are you asking me, right? We, we tend to do those things. And parents, believe it or not, parents most of the time knows when their child is lying. That is true. They may not reveal that they really know that their kids are lying. They may not bring it up a point at that time. But ten, parents tend to know when their kids are lying. How, why, do we, why do we think we can lie to God? Right? We can't. It's not a good strategy. But Cain tries to cover up his sin by lying to God. And sin is always covered up with deceit. Right? We always try to cover up sin with deceit in some form or some way. What does Cain also do? Cain then talks back to God. It, look, it reads as if he's trying to give God some sass here. You know? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, not a good idea to talk back to God, right? Am I my brother's keeper? What is he saying? Am I supposed to watch over my brother? Isn't he the shepherd? Isn't he the one who watches over the flock? Am I responsible to protect him? Am I responsible to watch over him? Right? Why are you asking me? Talks back to God. As he did with his mother, God asked Cain, what have you done? Remember, when God confronts Eve, he says, what have you done? But this time, God answers his own question, right? He asks him, what have you done? But he answers his own question. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's kind of interesting. Adam and Eve failed to watch out for each other. Adam and Eve failed to protect each other. Cain not only didn't protect his brother, but committed the ultimate harm in murdering his brother. He took his brother's life. Cain's judgment, what happens? Verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. 
You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. If you remember, when God brought judgment upon Adam, he didn't curse Adam. He cursed the serpent, but he didn't curse Adam. But what did he do? He cursed the ground, right? You are going to harvest the ground, but you're going to do it in toil and in hardship. This time, Cain is cursed. And particularly, he is cursed from the ground where he used to work the fields, work the harvest. He will no longer be able to. The ground would not yield fruit for Cain. He will be a wanderer. His life would be unstable. It's interesting, Adam and Eve aren't recorded. We don't see a recording of them contesting God's judgment. But here Cain pleads with the Lord. He's going to be driven from the face of the ground. But more importantly, he's going to be hidden from the Lord's face, the Lord's presence. He gave an offering from the ground, but his offering was not pleasing to the Lord, and now the ground will no longer yield fruit for Cain. Cain committed murder. He took his brother's life, and now Cain fears for his own life. And what's amazing is that still God hears Cain and shows him mercy. God says, all right, you will have a mark, a mark so that Cain would not be murdered himself. And we don't know what that mark is, and I'm okay with just not, I mean, I don't need to speculate. I don't know what that mark is. I don't know what it was that people may have seen or whatever it is to keep from Cain being murdered. We don't know. But I think the most condemning statement is verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting, in chapter 3, it ends with Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, but even when they were banished from the garden, they weren't banished from God's presence, right? They had fellowship with God in some way or some fashion, some relationship, I should say, right? But here in chapter 4, when Cain murders his brother, he is banished from the presence of the Lord, at least from his face and what Cain perceives as. What are some lessons we can learn about Cain and Abel? As I mentioned, there's a story that's being presented to the immediate audience at the time. The Israelites, as they're reading this, Israel, as they're reading this, there's a lesson for them to be learned a story for them to remember and go back to. But there's a lesson and a story for us to learn as well. And we saw that the book of Genesis, right, it's the book of beginnings. Genesis, the beginning of creation, right? It's the beginning of life. It's the beginning of relationships with God and with each other. 
And we're also introduced to the beginning of the relationship between man and sin. It began with disobedience in the garden. And we're seeing how that sin can, can grow and fester and lead to murder. In a few weeks, we're going to see where it leads to as a whole as in society. The deceptive lure and the appeal of pride leading to sin and evil. So what are some lessons we can learn from this story? One, anger fuels sin. Anger is like an accelerant for fire. Right? Anger can fuel sin. Cain did not just have anger issues. I don't think that. I don't think it was just that. I don't think that Cain just needed anger management classes. Right? But I think it, it became an accelerant from what was going on in Cain. I think it was a deeper rooted issue. I don't have a verse to claim that, but, but usually anger is a response, right? Anger is a response to what we are experiencing. What, ang- what the conflict for Cain was, we don't exactly know. But it was enough for him to take it out on his brother. We're not given details on this conflict between Abel. But it's interesting, as we go along in the Old Testament, we'll see that conflicts among siblings seems to be a recurring theme as we go along. We see that with Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. We see that this continual theme. And Cain was given the opportunity to make things right with the Lord. Instead, he committed a great evil. That anger led him to commit a great evil. And you think about anger. What's so dangerous about anger? Well, the dangerous thing about anger is not anger itself. As I said, anger is a response. And sometimes anger is justified, right? All right, it's not anger itself that was the evil. Sometimes anger is justified. We read in Scripture of the Lord's anger. The Lord is righteous in his response to evil. But what differentiates between our anger and the Lord's anger is that our anger is not always justified. We may think it is, but our anger is not always justified. And how we respond in anger can lead us to commit more sin to make things worse. We don't always respond well when we're angry. And in fact, I don't know how many of you can admit this, but sometimes we are in our ugliest form when we're angry. We say things that we wouldn't normally say. We do things we we wouldn't normally do. We treat others in ways we wouldn't normally treat. But that anger leads us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. So anger can bring out the worst in us, the ugliest things in us. And anger can drive us to say and do the things that are not pleasing to the Lord. It's no wonder if you look at, especially in Proverbs, how many times Proverbs mentions anger. Proverbs 19, 19. A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. I, love, I, I, I like that one stood out for me. 
A man of great anger will bear the penalty for If you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Why? Because anger can be so controlling and it can so easily be our immediate response. And it can be so hard to break. Leads us to do the thing again and again and again. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. I think we can all relate to that. If we are quick to anger... We act foolishly. We say foolish things. Yesterday in in the men's fellowship, we talked about marriage particularly, our marriage relationship, and how God calls us to have a selfless love, to look out for the other person. But when marriage conflicts happen, and when people get angry, you can say some pretty foolish things and do foolish things. Most of the time when we're angry, it's an underlying dissatisfaction in us. There's something else that's really bothering us, and anger is just that button, that trigger that just makes it come out. And I want to challenge us, challenge each of us to pray and ask God, Lord, when you get angry, when your button is about to press or be pressed, or maybe it's already pressed, take a moment and say, Lord, Can you search my heart? Try me. Know me. Tell me my own condition. Tell me what's going on. Why am I so angry? Why does this tick me off? Why is this when my sibling does this to me? And maybe just because they're annoying. I don't know, right? But why is it that I get so angry with this? Why is it that when my spouse does this? Why is this when this happens? When I, I, I trust me, when I drive on the freeway, I I use this analogy because it might be relatable. There are times when I, I say, why am I so upset? This person is driving 60 miles per hour in the fast lane. I have to say, it's me. It's me. Now, should they drive faster? Yeah, but it's me. But but so we have to get in the use to asking the Lord, God, try me, know me. What is in me that is causing me to be so angry? And usually it's not just that moment, but it's something deeper inside. The second thing we, we learn today sin seduces and controls sin seduces and controls sin is seductive it says sin lies waiting at the door and its desire is for us to open the door invite it in and take residence in our minds until it could control our behavior that's what sin is like That's the personification, this image of sin is like. It's waiting at the door for you to open your door to let it in and let it just reside there. And it's going to stay there until you give in. That's a very vivid image. I don't know if you ever had those people who knock at your door and you know you're not expecting guests. And you're like, shh, don't say anything. Don't let them know we're home. And you just wait for them to leave right? Because you know, if you make the noise, like, oh, I have to open the door. And you open that door, and then, hey, you know, do you have some time, right? But sin is seductive. Let's not mischaracterize sin. Sin isn't just forbidden fun, right? The world wants to portray sin as it's forbidden fun. 
You're going to miss out if you don't. God is withholding from you, right? James 1, do I have that there? James 1, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by what? Is it the devil? By his own lust, his own desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What is that saying? How is sin birthed? We are sin factories. We are like sin factories. And it comes from our desires. We are selfish creatures. We are prideful creatures. We desire things that we should not have. We're influenced by things we should not entertain. We are incapable of holiness on our own. We can try to do the right thing, but we'll never be completely holy on our own because we are prone to sin and we will disobey God. The Bible says outside of Christ, we are slaves to sin. We obey our desires but while the devil breeds sinfulness, what does the Bible say? Jesus brings what? Righteousness. Praise the Lord that Jesus breaks the bondage of sin so that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. We no longer have to obey our sinful desires. The third thing, evil threatens the sanctity of life. Evil threatens the sanctity of life. We saw evil manifest itself in the most horrific ways this past week. Unimaginable ways. We were reminded what took place in Israel, the extent of how evil man's heart and minds can be. The atrocities that take place. You can't imagine it. How someone could do something. I won't say exactly all the things that happened. Oh, maybe I will. We can't imagine that kind of evil. But evil manifests itself in many different forms. Evil manifests itself very violently. Want to take someone's life, murder somebody, violate somebody in brutal ways. But evil also manifests itself in appearingly beautiful ways, right? Evil can either take your life violently or evil can slowly seduce you and deteriorate your life day by day by day by day. As I mentioned before, Satan doesn't care. He will use pleasure, he will use pain to entice you. And so evil manifests in so many different ways ways and evil deceives people they deceive people into believing that they don't need god evil deceives people in believing that there is no god right it deceives people into believing anything but god believe whatever you want just don't believe in the bible be a muslim be a hindu be a new age do all this believe it be an atheist you can believe anything just don't be a christian Right? You see that in schools. You see in public schools. You can worship in any other way, but if you're a Christian, be careful. Be careful. Evil surfaces from man's sinful desires, and evil is a tool of the devil. 1 Peter 5 eight. 
Be of sober mind. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the devil didn't make you do it, but he can certainly try to convince you. But those desires come from inside. Come from us. And he says, it says we got to be careful because the devil's like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And that's evil. Evil wants to destroy your life, one way or the other. Last thing, sin drives us further from the Lord. Sin drives us further from the Lord, separates us from the Lord. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I love that. I love that. Praise the Lord for his grace and merciful kindness towards us, right? Amen to that. Praise God for his mercy and kindness. Through Christ, through his death and resurrection, we can be forgiven from our sin. We no longer be bound to our sin. No longer slaves to our sin. And we can have fellowship with the Lord. And then even when we sin, even when we mess up, we can find forgiveness and restoration and healing, and the opportunity to make things right, to do the right thing instead of doing the wrong things all the time. We receive salvation and redemption, and that Jesus brings us to the Father. Right? What does Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But sin causes separation. Even though we're saved, how many times do we feel distant from God? How many of us have ever felt before we feel so far away from God? And perhaps it's because we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And even though God is with us, and maybe even the Holy Spirit with us, we can feel distance sometimes, right? And then God allows us to feel that sense of distance from God because we're not doing what we ought to be doing. We're not at a good place in our life. So we draw back towards the Lord. I've been accused before, not by anyone here, but in times before of talking too much about sin. Why do you talk about sin so much? Can't you talk about the love of God? Can't you talk about happy things? My intention whenever I bring up sin is not to make people feel guilty. It's not to make you feel like, like sitting in your guilt and shame, right? That's not the intention of when I bring up sin. And especially here in, in a room, and I don't know who's watching or listening, you know, you're, you're, you all may be believers and saved, and you have Christ, and you have forgiveness in your life, right? But the reason that I bring up sin as, as I do, and I don't like sit around thinking, you know what, what, what am I going to talk about Sunday? Sin. That's a good topic. No, I don't do that, right? But the reason I don't shy away from bringing it up is because it's becoming increasingly indistinguishable among those who claim to be Christians. Sin is becoming increasingly indistinguishable from those who claim to be Christians. I'm not talking about those who are just kind of wrestle with sin, who wrestle with the things that they, they know they shouldn't do. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about nowadays, so it seems like 
people can't even recognize what is sin. They can't even get to the place where they see, you know what, this is not right. This is not good. And we're getting to that place, and we're seeing it more and more in that place. And it may not be that you are saved. It may be because you you know Christ's forgiveness. You know you're going to be with the Lord. But what about the person who's an unbeliever? The atheist, the skeptic, the Muslim, the Hindu, the New Age person, the agnostic, who's in your circle and sees no effect of Christ in your life. What's their impression? What do they learn about Christ? Or do they say, well, there's no difference? There's no difference. I'm going to end with this passage. When I, when I hear this picture of sin lurking at the door, right, waiting at the door, I had this passage come to mind. In Revelation chapter 3, right, Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea in, in John's vision in Revelation. And I'm not going to get into that passage, but you know the Laodicean church was known for being a lukewarm church. They weren't useful for the Lord. And not only that, they did not recognize their own miserable condition. They couldn't see it. They didn't realize how miserable they were, how sinful they were. And God calls them to repent. But he says in in verse 20 of chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That, that, that image came to mind because I see this two contrasting images, right? Sin lurks at the door, waiting for us to open that door to pounce on us, to devour us, to destroy us, entice us away from the Lord. But this image where we see of Christ at the door knocking, waiting for us to open the door so that he can come with us, and to fellowship with us. To fellowship with us. And I see these two contrasting images. And the question that we go is, what is waiting at our door? What is waiting at our door? And what are we opening the door to or for? And what are we keeping the door closed for? When we see sin knocking at our door, opportunities, temptations at the door, how readily do we open the door and say, hey, come on in. Boy, I'm glad you're here. I need, you, I need you this time. But then we, see, we sense the Lord knocking at our door. We're like, maybe let's hide. Maybe we pretend God doesn't see us. Turn off the light. Turn off the TV. Don't make a sound. I won't go to church. Maybe he'll leave me alone. Right? How do we respond? May we give God, give to God in faith. We learn about Abel, he gave in faith. May we give to God in faith. May we desire to say, God, I want to give you the best that I have. I don't want to shortchange you. I won't be perfect, but that's my desire. I don't want to fear giving you too much. I don't want to fear letting go of anything. I don't want to fear what I might experience if I let go of control. God, help me to desire to give you my best in faith knowing that I'm not going to lose so much 
then I'm going to be at a loss. But also may we be watchful of what lurks at our door. May we be careful of what is at our door and what we're opening in and letting reside in our hearts and in our minds. Because it's going to go out, it's going to come out to devour us if we allow that sin to come in. And they're going to push our buttons. It's going to push our buttons. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, come before you, Lord Jesus, and I just thank you for your kindness and your mercy. I thank you, Lord God, for your patience and long-suffering towards us. And Lord, I pray that as we come before you, may we want to offer you, Lord, in faith. I pray, Lord God, that if we, we would open our lives to you, Lord Jesus, your presence, your spirit moving in our life, we would desire you over the temptations of the flesh. Thank you, Lord God, for your forgiveness, your love, and your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.